From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to startuphypeman.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making her way to the microphone from Naperville, Illinois, and currently residing in Chicago, Illinois. She is the Director of Operations at Alchemy Health. Please welcome Shelly Patel. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome. She is Shelly Patel, Director of Operations at Alchemy Health. What is Alchemy Health? Well, they are creating a culture of consciousness and championing mental health for the Black community in a way that has never been done before, empowering a mindful generation to build bridges, find freedom, and transform feeling into healing. Alchemy Health has raised money. They are set to go to market. And Shelly herself has a lot of experience before joining Alchemy Health, actually, with marketplaces, previously working at companies like Uber, Groupon, and Chef Hero uh, in various roles across strategy and operations. And so in our conversation today, we're going to take that collective experience she's got from her background and what she's bringing to Alchemy Health as well to talk about building a successful marketplace. Shelly, why is this on your mind? Why is it important to you? Yeah, um, good question. And thanks, thanks for having me today. Definitely excited. Um, so why is it on my mind? Well, it's just, it's such a hot topic. Um, I will say I probably got into the space pretty, I guess, accidentally early on in my career. Um, but man, like since then, over the last decade, it has just blown up. Um, I feel like every company is trying a certain model that's similar to a marketplace model, um, some successfully, obviously some unsuccessfully. And there's just so much that goes into it that I think is um, not always so obvious. So uh, it's definitely been an exciting and interesting place to, to focus my career. We're going to dive a whole lot more into the concept, the strategy, the action items around building a successful marketplace. Before we do that, let's learn a little bit more about Shelly. Funny story. No one would know this, but Shelly and I have actually known each other for many years. We got in contact over the last couple of years through startup stuff, but uh, Shelly actually dated my older brother way back in high school. Uh, so my first question is, what was it like? No, uh, that's not my first question. Let's save that for another episode. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious to know, actually, because um, I, I don't know much about your family. Um, mm-hmm. What's your family structure regarding like siblings or are you an only child? And how do you feel that has shaped your perspective on relationships at large? Not necessarily like romantic, but generally building relationships. 
Yeah, sure. Interesting. I love that question. Um, so yeah, I come from a very small, a, a pretty tight kind of just immediate family circle. So like I grew up with my parents around and an older brother. And I think, I guess what's unique about that and kind of how, as it relates to your question is that um, we, ne- we didn't grow up with any like relatives or anyone else around. It was really just us always. We didn't have cousins in the country, aunts, uncles, anyone. And I think that actually has shaped things because, you know, sometimes there are a lot of like external pressures that come on from what is your society gonna think of a decision you're making? What is, is your community gonna be supportive, not supportive, um, especially when, you, when you're talking about kind of unconventional career paths. And so um, I think one positive is that um, we never really had to worry too much about that stuff. Like as long as I felt like my parents were, you know, supportive of what I was doing and felt good about my decision making, it didn't really have to go beyond our four walls and didn't, I never really had to like seek approval outside of that, um, which is super liberating, especially when I talk to to friends and peers, especially uh, women, especially South Asian women, um, you know, in kind of a, a similar like generation and you know um, similar similar demographic, and uh, I know that can be challenging for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. There's a, a need to fulfill an expectation that a lot of a lot of people um, feel is a burden placed on them. Yeah. And, and rightfully so in a lot of cases, I think as well. Okay. So with that kind of more like kind of like tight knit family structure, a lot more freedom and flexibility. Um, can you give me a window into? your almost like your career decision making like you went to u of i for college university of illinois at champaign urbana champaign what did you study there and whatever you were studying there is that does that have anything to do with what you're doing today (laughs) yeah i want to say no um but i also feel like that totally like discredits my college experience which is not also not fair to do um so yeah, so I did go uh, to U of I and I was in the College of Business there. Um, and I can definitely say that that was a good decision in hindsight and, and definitely did um, kind of like, it was a nice sort of catalyst, I, I think for at least like a, as a launching point to my career. Um, but I did study marketing and I guess ironically enough have never actually held a real marketing role. <laughs> and um, it's interesting, I'm actually like, pretty happy about that in hindsight. I think some of it's a result of when I graduated, um, you know, around that kind of 08, 09, um, you know, the the economy at that time and the, uh, just the, 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 the climate, I guess, around finding a job. I mean, no one was hiring was in marketing. Collapse, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm actually like grateful in hindsight. I think if I had found myself uh, if it had been easy to find kind of a cushy marketing role at, um, I don't know, some of the, the types of companies that I was looking at that ended up freezing hiring altogether, um, I think my path could have gone very differently. Um, but because that was so challenging when I graduated, I was sort of forced to be, I think, a little bit more, I don't know, like thoughtful and self-aware around like, what am I actually good at? And like, how can I really lean lean into that? And how can I make sure, how can I use that in a way 
to get myself a job when no one's giving anyone a job these days, you know, um, it forces me to kind of just be more reflective, kind of sell myself a bit harder and stronger than I would have had to otherwise. And um, definitely in hindsight, I'm, I'm grateful for that because um, I, I think my trajectory would have been a lot different otherwise. Can you talk through then um, as you, you know, started to make your own in your career? You know, at the time when you graduated college, I don't know if the idea of marketplace really, I mean, it, it existed, but it was not a mainstream word whatsoever. And mm -hmm. people didn't think about uh, getting a job in the same way or, or, or gigging in the same way or whatever you want to call it, right? Oh, totally. Or, or, yeah. or being a supplier of something that they're not using. So talk through like, you know, how did you like first get drawn into that we'll call it industry or sector overall of marketplaces. And was it the fact that, hey, the business model attracts me overall, or was it just something specific about, you know, you're, you first you were at Groupon and then Uber and then Chef Hero. Was it there something with Groupon where you're just like, yeah, whatever, it's a job, I'll take it. Yeah, um, I would say it's a little bit of both. Definitely early on in my career, I can't, I'm not going to pretend like I was that thoughtful like there was a little bit of like i want a job i um want to be in an environment in an industry that's you know moving quickly that's innovative um that's just fun you know i like who i work with i'm being challenged like all those good things that you know i think people are looking for in a work environment and so it was definitely a little bit by accident at first um I knew after after working for a little bit at a larger Fortune 500 company, I did know uh, very quickly actually there, I did know that I wanted a place that was um, just able to move more quickly. Like given that early experience out of college, um, I was in a space that was trying to embrace like the digital world, quote unquote, um, but at like a dinosaur of a company where they just like couldn't do that um, effectively and fast enough, like the competition was all heating up around them because of it. And I like got frustrated with that very quickly, you know, and um, was like, all right, like I know how to do some of this. Like I shouldn't have to get approvals up a hundred different chains. Like I am the end user here. Like we are the generation that like knows this stuff the best. Right. Um, and so then that's kind of what what led me to shift shift I guess like work environments so so drastically not to say it was a conscious decision to join a marketplace company um, but then after my time at Groupon it was definitely more of a conscious de decision I, I realized that from an operational perspective and from a strategic perspective there was so much overlap and whether you were dealing with like hotels or restaurants or drivers or whatever, like a lot of the underlying challenges were super similar. And because the industry was kind of just taking off, um, people, I don't think people really like knew where to look for when it came to people with like prior experience in the space, you know, like it's always kind of funny when you're in, when you're in, in an environment that's doing something that's like that net new it's like how do you hire someone with previous experience like there is no previous experience you know um so like i kind of found a way to like sell my experience and say like like for example like hey uber you guys are the first ones doing this really essentially the only ones doing this like you know sure you can recruit from goldman sachs and you can recruit from like 
the big four and all of that. And that's great, but you can't pull from a place that's literally doing the same thing we are because nothing is doing the same thing we are. So like, here's how I can draw from previous experience and say like, all right, there's a lot of parallel. There's obviously gonna be specific challenges to each industry, but um, but there is so much that's transferable. And if we marry that experience with other other teammates and other people coming from places like Goldman Sachs and all of that, um, then then we can have this really incredible team, you know, that's like essentially unstoppable. And um, that's sort of how I approached my career search when when going from Groupon to Uber and then Uber to Chef Hero was really drawing on a lot of those parallels that I was seeing. Let's use that as a transition point then to get into our main topic today, which is building a successful marketplace. And what I want to ask first on this topic is, I, I you know I encounter a lot of founders who are either have desire to or are already building up a marketplace. Um, I tell you, a lot of the a lot of people I talk to think it's really easy to like, oh yeah, yeah, we're just gonna create a marketplace, you know, model. <laughs> And that, that's kind of like their extent of like their description. Of, yeah, it'll just be a marketplace model. Yeah. I think most are misguided in their assumptions. Um, so what would you say in your experience, what could you say now are some common assumptions that a founder or a team might have about building out a marketplace that actually, you know, maybe they're like actually myths that, you, that you're here to debunk? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, you're definitely right on there. I mean, it's a lot more nuanced and a lot more challenge, challenging than just saying like, we're going to do these five things and it's going to be great, you know? Um, and I get why it happens because it is, I think on the surface level, it's a very attractive business model. Um, so like when I think about assumptions, I I think about why people feel that way. So like, for example, um, for example, people are excited to like, not own inventory. Like there isn't a lot of capital expenditure when you're not like, think of Uber, you're not like no. buying the cars or buying or like employing the drivers or buying a fleet or Airbnb. You're not like buying all this real estate, you know? Um, so people get excited about that. They're like, Oh, it's super lean. Like, you know, I don't actually have, like, I don't need a lot of money. Yeah, I don't have no to. fixed overhead. Right. Um, and I would say that is something I think that entices people um, and they kind of don't or they, or they kind of don't fully think through what that means. So like, you know, a good example is um, like think about Airbnb, like an example everyone knows. So it's great that you don't own the inventory, you don't have to buy all this real estate, but then the costs and resources that come with still needing to like vet and maintain quality and ultimately still be the liable party, like you're you're kind of getting that liability without without the good of it, which can be like you don't have control over your assets. So like that can be that can almost kind of go in the reverse way that someone expects it to, because you're you're sometimes getting all the bad of it without the good of it. Mm. You know, like you are getting you're on the hook when something goes wrong. You know, you are expected to manage it in a certain way, whether it's like quality or curation or whatever like your angle is, you know, um, maybe for something like eBay or StockX, maybe it's um, the like the trustworthiness and the credibility around, you know, uh, uh, having authentic products on your platform. So like you're still um, looked to for all of that, but then you're like, well, how can I do that when I don't actually have control 
over these products or over these people. And so um, sometimes what ends up kind of feeling like almost a shortcut, like, oh, cool, I don't have to actually own any of this, can it can easily backfire because you get the bad of being on the hook for it, but you don't get the good of having all the like control and agency over it. Yeah, so it's essentially, if I understand that right, it's people are buying or, or coming purely based off of trust, reputation, and experience. But as the provider, as the, as the, as the platform, you actually have no control over what their experience. I mean, you can create some controls, but yeah. you don't own the end product. You don't own right. their ultimate interaction with the supplier, whatever that might right. be. Right. And then that ultimately is going to reflect back on you, not necessarily that individual. Right. Right. Exactly. And more importantly, like you have to kind of own up to it, you know, if and when things are a problem and you can choose not to, of course, but then I think you have to ask yourself, if I'm not owning up to it, like what is the inherent value of this platform to the user then? Like what, what reason do they have to come to you as opposed to like interact with this supplier, whatever it is on their own, you know, maybe you're offering, maybe you're offering some sort of like, you know, like a trust component, like maybe you trust something on Airbnb more than just like a random guy that's like, yeah, come stay in my place, you know, Um, maybe there's a cost implication, sometimes platform, sometimes the platform, you know, just given scale can bring prices down for the user. So like, that could be a reason like Uber is a great example of that. Um, so there has to be some inherent reason or inherent value that you're providing as a platform to the user that's beyond just the transaction in itself, right? Because, you know, otherwise, like, why pay whatever it is? Is it a fee or, you know, whatever the monetization model is, why would you do that if there's nothing, you know, inherently valuable to the platform in addition to, um, or I guess, instead of just going straight to whoever that supplier is. Yeah, yeah, and and I think we've probably, most of us have maybe gotten in a ride share before or stayed at someone's place before and had at least one interaction where they're like, hey, next time, if you just wanna like, just call me direct, you don't have to pay like the whatever fees or anything then, like I'm totally down for that. so I think you're always kind of hedging against that, which I think speaks to you have to take care of the supplier side of the market. You can't just say like list on my platform and that's the extent of your relationship right. with them, right? So how, so how do right. you go about taking care of the suppliers? Yeah, yeah. It's a great point because I've seen a lot of examples where that's essentially an afterthought at the beginning. And I think sometimes it's too late by the time you realize that, Um, that's just as important, if not more important of a customer base to you, right? Because like, I mean, they are your product ultimately. Um, and so I've seen, I've seen companies go about it a a variety of ways you know, a lot of it, um, is around creating value for that supplier. So value, it could start with just like, Hey, we're bringing you demand that you would not have otherwise you know, had access to, and that's huge in itself, of course, you know, think of Airbnb as an example, that that's um, an obvious, you know, value proposition. Um, But I do think it gets a lot more complicated than that when, especially when there's, um, 
potentially when it's potentially like a very competitive space, um, you know, you do have to figure out how to make make that stickier for for really both sides, but often for the supply side. And an interesting approach that I've seen a lot of companies take is um, the I guess like the technical term is like a SaaS enabled marketplace where basically you are creating a tool within the platform that's that important to the supplier and it basically powers their operations. Mm-hmm. So they are like, I always call it like, you're you're basically coming for the tool, staying for the network. And basically that tool, um, an obvious example is um, OpenTable, like the reservation app. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't know, but like their origin story is that because they weren't able to get demand right away when they started out, they just served as a reservation tool for restaurants. And they basically just told the restaurant like, hey, you're getting phone calls, you're getting texts, you're getting all these things anyways, whether through us or not. What if we just helped you manage all of that and so you can keep your head on straight, you know, day to day. Um, And then as you're doing that, that the supply is now building up organically because all of these restaurants are incentivized to, to use that tool, right, to, to get on the platform. And then um, and then the users like us, we are like, oh, awesome, there's like 100 amazing restaurants on this platform, now I'm excited to use it. And then that kind of gets your, your flywheel going. Um, but that's, I think that's a really interesting approach. Um, it worked out really well for OpenTable. Um, I don't know that they would have survived as a business otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was similar to, my, my last company was taking a similar approach basically uh, creating a tool for wholesale food suppliers and, um, you know, and then telling them that like, you know, the tool is just kind of the first step of this relationship. But then once you're on, once you're on our, our platform, you'll also see that you're, you know, getting more customers that you wouldn't have otherwise had access to. Now, can you speak to, you know, keeping that in mind, is it possible that you're actually or I guess, is there a point at which you actually are providing too much and then it becomes overwhelming? Too much demand. Too much, so like too many options for the supplier or, 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 or on either side, really, but we were just yeah. talking about supplier, right? Where it's like, hey, this tool is going to be the start of a longer relationship where you're going to have all these things, but then is it possible to actually almost like over-feature yourself? Or yeah, I mean- Featureitis it- mode, yeah. Totally. I think, you know, we're almost always talking about industries that are like pretty antiquated, right? Um, Food supply was a great example of that. Um, Taxis are another great example of that. And um, I think that's where you do have to kind of get out of your head and make sure that you're solving a problem that they're telling you they have and not just like a problem you think they have. And um, it definitely, it definitely happens a lot, specifically in the marketplace space, where um, you know founders think that they are, like you know, that they're kind of changing, changing the supplier's life or changing, you know, changing the world in this specific way. And the vision can be great, and and often is. Um, but the challenge with marketplaces is that it's really tough to just sell the vision like you 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 know your early adopters don't always have a great experience um they're inherently unreliable at first you know i'm sure we all have like some horror stories of 
whether it's like I'm on a vacation and like my car rental didn't work out, my hotel reservation didn't work out, my mm-hmm. like tour I booked didn't work out. And like, if I had just gone the old fashioned route and like called, you know, like looked up a place, called them, like it would have been a sure thing. And um, sometimes, you know, I'm willing to pay like a little bit extra for reliability there, you know, even if it is the old school way of doing something, um, you know, people have been, at an airport and they're like, I was counting on Uber. And then I realized like Uber, I don't know, doesn't like serve this airport anymore. And then I was stuck, you know? Um, I mean, you'll lose people that way quickly, especially early on. Um, So I do think that's why kind of to your point earlier around it sounding so simple, like a lot of marketplaces like probably shouldn't ever really exist in the first place because they, if they can't provide that reliable experience, um, you know, I don't know that they're like 10 X better than the status quo, like that, you know, kind of that fundamental test of like, are you even 10 X better than the alternative? And sometimes your vision might be, but like, that's not enough early on. Like you need to be providing more value than that. Then like, you know, most founders are great at selling the vision, but um, I think, you know, then when you're like stranded on vacation, like, is that really enough? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one of the keys is being able to, you know, customers don't necessarily need the bigger vision. They need the what, what's in front of me right now here today. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's where like, sometimes you do overwhelm people with features and they're kind of like, I just needed this to work. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't need to be that much more complicated. And if it didn't, when I expected it to, like, um, you know, I mean, food delivery is another obvious example where like, there's all this fancy functionality and I'm like, just get my order right. Damn it. You know, like that's all I'm asking. (laughs) I don't don't need anything fancier than that right now. Well, and I always point to, uh, you know, especially if I happen to be like mentoring a very early stage company and, they've got all these ideas around like what they want the product to do. I'll always point to Uber as an example. And I'm like, look, it was tap button, get ride for a long time. You mm-hmm. didn't have nine options of what that car was going to be. Was it, was it eco-friendly? Was it extra leg space? Was right. it whatever? It was just, do you want to ride? Press this button and we're going to bring it to you. And right. they had to get the market conditioned to that first yeah. before introducing new features. And now, you know, yeah. it's got enough marketplace or enough market saturation that everyone has a baseline understanding of how it works, even if they haven't even downloaded it before in their life to where the homepage can now be, do you want to ride? Do you want food? Do you want to rent a car? Do you want to rent a boat? Right. Or whatever it is now. Right. Right. So it, but it takes a while to condition them to condition the market to just get one behavior right before you can overload people and overwhelm them. Oh, totally. A hundred percent. I mean, I remember back when we were like launching Uber and literally first explaining it to people who, you know, have obviously never heard of it. And even something that sounds simple now. Obvious right now. Yeah. yeah, Like, yeah, you know, it, um, you know, just like, oh, do I have to call the person? How do they know? How do they know where I'm going to be? Like all the questions, you know, up front. And then I remember like when we first launched like Uber Excel for the first time. And that is like, again, sounds relatively simple right now. We're not even talking like, is it like, can you bring a pet or is it like wheelchair accessible or is it eco-friendly? Like just, you know, do you want a slightly bigger car? Bigger car, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and like even that, um, you know, I mean, I think 
the timing in certain markets, like, you know, it hit, hit quickly. And, you know, those are obviously the markets where, you know, these things kind of take on a little faster and people are maybe a little bit more both open-minded and tech savvy and all of that. But then like there were smaller markets where we were like, let's just shut some of these products down. Like, you know, we launched Uber select, we shut it down. Um, you know, it's just like at that point, the operational, like the resources behind it are not necessarily worthwhile for, you know, the, whatever it is you're getting, like the added revenue or, or whatnot. Um, sometimes it's like, nope, we're just getting too many questions, too much confusion. This is more trouble than it's worth. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about how you actually build up the, the demand side of a marketplace. Before I do that, I just want to take a quick break here. All season, we're featuring different startup hype man portfolio clients and the elevator pitches we have created for them using the startup hype man KPASA elevator pitch formula, which stands for problem, approach, solution, and action. Today, we're featuring actually a marketplace company by the name of, uh, by the name of Avana. They are based out of Melbourne, Australia. Um, they've got handful of target audiences, one of which is chiropractors. And so the elevator pitch we created goes something like this. Hey, listen, you know, we talk to chiropractors every day who tell us their schedule has one too many openings. Their website doesn't generate enough leads. It's hard to stand out. And they want a few more patients to feel better about their practice month to month. Well, Ivana helps you fill the white space on your calendar here. You can use Ivana so new patients can easily find and book their available time slots with you. And you don't have to pay any annoying signup or monthly subscription fee. All you have to do is just focus on what you do best, which is providing great treatment. We'll focus on getting them into your calendar. You can get started for free at listyourbusiness.avana.com.au. And if you, listener, are interested in getting your pitch developed, your elevator pitch, your pitch deck, whatever that might be, you can contact me at Startup Hype Man, startuphypeman.com or Rajiv, R-A-J-I-V, at startuphypeman.com. Today in our season finale on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, we're talking with Shelly Patel, the Director of Operations at Alchemy Health, who's got a long history working in marketplaces, and we're talking about building a successful marketplace. In retrospect, I feel like we probably should have titled this episode, Debunking the Myths of uh, Building Marketplaces or something to that effect, because Shelly is giving us a healthy, healthy dose of reality about what is, I think, at service level seen as like an easier play or just hyper attractive without thinking about, you know, some of the real considerations. So Shelly, before the break there, we talked about, um, you know, making sure you're able to deliver something to the customer, to the demand side, that's going to be easy for them to use. Can you mm -hmm. talk through, and actually, I guess before that, um, what do you feel is the best approach? Do you, do you build up the supply side first or the demand side first? Yeah, so definitely a good question, um, and I don't want—I don't want my answer to feel like a, a cop out, but it definitely depends. Um, so I think you know, depending on the industry, you're kind of naturally constrained on one side or the other. Um, and I've been fortunate to sort of experience experience both sides of that. Um, so, like for example, at at Uber, we were definitely. Actually, Uber was interesting because we went through a little bit of both. Like when I started, we were definitely supply constrained and um, invested a lot of our time and attention and resources to that. And then eventually ended up having to flip, you know, to to the rider side of things, um, especially to appeal to new audiences besides those like ad early adopter types, you know. So like the example is always like, all right, what can I get to like or what do I have to do to get like my mom to use to take an Uber from the airport, you know, like that, 
reaching her is going to be very different than like reaching me, you know, from a, from a marketing perspective. Sure. Um, so that was interesting. Um, food supply um, was definitely uh, constricted on the, the restaurant side. Um, it was actually really, really easy to get the suppliers on board. Um, but restaurants are overwhelmed by a million different food tech companies <laughs> reaching out to them all day, every day. They have no time for anything. Um, so that was challenging on the demand side. Um, so I think there's always um, interesting nuances to the industry in itself. And then, and it also changes as, as I think the product evolves and the industry um, evolves. So um, yeah, I think, I, again, I don't want that to be a cop-out answer, but I think it definitely, definitely depends. And I don't, I also don't think it's about like, doing one first, I think, I mean, you're, you're really always doing both simultaneously. I think the question you should be asking is, um, where am I going to invest more of my attention and resources? So um, like in the Uber example, I mean, we definitely had teams and people and resources dedicated to both sides of the market. Um, but the types of resources were very different. You know, we put in a lot of money into like driver incentives and, and all of that. And we had to um, take a very analytical approach mm. to optimizing supply um, to the point where we were like literally teaching ourselves SQL to like be able to pull the data that we were looking for because we were like, we need to do, we, we need to be that thorough about how to make the most of our supply funnel. Sure. Um, Whereas the demand side wasn't anything like that. It was more about partnerships, you know, how to partner with like events, um, concerts, venues, sports, you know, all of that, um, referral programs, things like that. Not so much analytical, um, but definitely more of like a creative and community approach on the writer side. What are some strategies that you have deployed yourself or perhaps observed otherwise around generating demand and building the demand side. And I, and I, I ask that because I know how to take a B2B company to market, right? And it's like good old fashioned, like outbound prospecting, but you don't necessarily do that in a B2C market. And in fact, it's mm -hmm. kind of weird if you do that and they'll be like, get the hell out of my face. Mm -hmm. um, and aside from what I have seen where it's just like flyers and people on the corner, maybe, and maybe that's it. I, I, I genuinely don't know how someone goes from being not knowing a company like Home Chef or whatever exists mm -hmm. to ultimately becoming a customer. So can you talk through like, how do you make people aware on the demand side and then ultimately like get them to become users? Yeah. So um, it's funny you bring up Home Chef because I'm thinking, because that kind of sparks some different ideas than what I was even initially thinking to answer that question with. Um, so I think it's a little different. Like, again, again, there's so much nuance based on industry, but um, an interesting tactic that I've definitely seen is taking a very like decentralized and very like localized approach. So um, with Uber, a lot of it was around forming some key partnerships and relationships early on. And that's like very classic boots on the ground, like, cold emails, cold call, like, you know, nothing glamorous. Sometimes you're showing up at someone's office. Um, literally, that's how partnerships with, like, the Chicago Bulls, the Milwaukee Bucks, like, 
I mean, I like literally remember just showing up at someone's office, which is like wow. kind of funny to say. Wow, um, that's awesome. Yeah, and like, you know, starting with small events, like, hey, there's this farmer's market going on, like, what can we do to make transportation easier there? Um, that ultimately gets you to like then partnering with like the beer fest, you know, or then like Summerfest and Lollapalooza and stuff sure. like that. Um, so I think riding on some of the coattails there, that's definitely an approach because obviously you're associating yourselves with other brands and um, aspects of the community that people are well familiar with. Um, Let me actually, I want to yeah. um, highlight that because I hadn't necessarily thought of it that in that way before, but I want to make sure I understand correctly. Essentially, I think what you're saying, if I, and tell me if I'm wrong here, is finding where people are clustered and would have to do the action that you're thinking of that, that, that would have, they'd have to do that action anyways. Yeah. And so like you have just like a better case? way for them to do that action. Is that right? Yeah. I think um, maybe to put it more simply, it's around one, like meeting people where they are. And I mean that quite literally, yeah, literally, yeah. <laughs> um, but it could also be quite figuratively because we talk about that a lot, like even in my current space, which is like a mental health platform. So meeting people where they are, um, I think is a big part and being like actually solving the problem that they're, that they're experiencing and kind of is full circle to our, like our point early on that you have to make sure you're solving the problem that actually exists, you know, and not just like kind of what's in your head or what you've observed to exist, but like you need to hear it and see it. And like in this example, literally be there and see like the shit show. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to, to swear. Good. Um, you know, but like you see the shit show that is trying to leave Lollapalooza every year. And um, it is a disaster or you see, um, you know, I worked a lot in Wisconsin and they um, have really struggled with um, due to like lack of public transportation, like they've struggled with, um, you know, people driving under the influence. And um, so that is like a real problem that you see, you observe, it's there, people tell it to you. It's not one that you're just making up, you know? And so you have to make sure you're, you're where they are when they need to, you know, solve, solve this problem. And I think, you know, especially in a community where no one's heard of you, um, obviously there's some clout to associating yourself with names and, and things in the community that people are aware of. Yeah. Um, but if you can do that while also solving the problem for them, like then, I mean, you've just made that person's day, you know, um, and that's the kind of stuff people are going to remember. Got a few more questions here before we get into wrap up. And and normally I would say I've got a few quick questions, but I actually don't think these are these are quick <laughs> questions, and they, I think they all merit some some healthy discussion or some explanation. Um, I can also like talk indefinitely, so you have to stop me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think unit economics is an interesting portion of this whole conversation, especially it, through the lens of like, is it worth? building a marketplace company or not. Because I, I think it's something that a lot of companies overlook early on. And in fact, there was there's a really good New York Times piece recently. I don't know if you had read that, but I don't, I don't remember the author of it, but it was something, the title was something like the end of the millennial luxury subsidy economy. Mm, and what it, was, what it was talking about was like, you know, for the last decade, millennials 
got used to all these things that are actually luxuries. Private driver at at the tap of the button. Oh, yeah. Rent someone's home for cheap. Yeah. Have this food delivered to you. All these all these things that are technically luxuries. Yeah. And the cost was was provided so low because it was being subsidized Subsidized, by Silicon Valley investment uh, bankers. Yeah. uh, And uh, Silicon Valley investors. And then the investment starts to run out. And then the company realizes, well, actually, we can't charge this a nominal fee. We have to actually really charge it at more of a luxury fee because that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. And you're starting to see that a lot. I mean, look at the price of a ride share now. I mean, just last oh, yeah. week, my wife and I came back from Midway Airport and we ended up taking a taxi because it was cheaper than Uber and Lyft, which yeah. is crazy because, you know, just a few years ago, we were like, oh, I'll never take a taxi again. Uber yeah. and Lyft are so much cheaper. And, so, and then and Airbnb as well. You're seeing it's basically hotel and in many cases more, you know, more expensive than hotels now. Yeah. Right. So all these things. So I, I put that anecdote in front of you and I thought it was a really fascinating article to think about it in terms of like investors subsidizing the real cost of all of this. Yeah. Um, through all of that, I guess my question is how do you like plan for these unit economics? And is there a way to tell early on, like, you know what, actually this is, there's no way this could, this could be viable unless we just keep raising money, which, you know, is the strategy of some companies just, just keep raising money until we go public. And then even then we'll never be profitable, but we're public. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because I do think, especially this past year, um, we've seen a lot of these spaces get tested and frankly, like COVID broke a lot of them. Like, I don't think food delivery, rideshare, I don't think any of that's actually like working. It's sort of just kind of getting by, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it's getting by because, um, because I mean, they've at least been around long enough that like, I think we all have some faith that it'll bounce back and we want to like genuinely believe that. Um, but if we didn't have reason to believe that, I don't, I don't know that we would, you know, if these companies were had started out more recently. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. I mean, I think you touch on a big part of it, which is that money is essentially the short answer to like how you sort of, um, I don't know, I guess, tolerate like the marketplace dynamics early on, um, before you have liquidity and you're actually providing some value, um, to, to the users, you know, on, on both sides of the space. And so money will definitely get you there. <laughs> um, but I think the real question to your point is basically like what happens when, like whether that money is actually drying up or not, I think you have to ask yourself like, you know, maybe I'm a broken record at this point, but like, what is the value that you're providing? And is, you know, what what are people willing to actually pay for that? You know, Um like, I don't know, is inter- food delivery is an interesting one because like COVID aside, um, I mean, I have plenty of friends and colleagues who are like, I would never pay like, you know, whatever it is, like a $10 upcharge right. on like a $20, you know, $20 meal um, or whatever it is. And I'm kind of like, you know, if that's true, like that is inherently problematic because like that is literally the value that the platform is trying to provide. Like, why wouldn't I just call 
like a Chinese restaurant the way I used to when I was like 12 sure. years old, you yeah. know, and like, yeah. you know, sure it was, you know, I didn't have as many options and like all that good stuff, but, um, but I mean, it was reliable. Right. And right. I do think, you know, like your average customer, especially when it comes to like the, the quote unquote luxury space, like you are willing to pay for that reliability. You know, like if I can pay a little bit of an extra fee to ensure a smooth experience, like I might be okay with that, you know? And like, that's where I wanna make sure I get picked up by the airport or at the yeah. airport. I wanna make sure my hotel, my accommodations are there when I land in another country. Like when someone's like, oh, like I'll meet you with the keys at this coffee shop. And I'm kind of like, but what if you don't? Like I'm screwed, yeah. Yeah. you know? Um, and I would pay for, I would pay like a reliability fee at that point. Like I, yeah. I want the peace of mind of knowing that's a sure thing, you know? And, and I think that's why like we do have to get out of our heads and ask ourselves, is the experience actually that much better, especially at that kind of early adopter phase? And if it's not better, like should this marketplace even exist? And, you know, I'm sure it's an unpopular opinion, but like many of them should not exist. Yeah. Well, even, I mean, to your point there about the value, right? I'm just thinking about like my experience with DoorDash. Um, hardly used it. And then they have a partnership with Chase Sapphire, where if you have a Chase Sapphire card, you get Dash Pass for yeah. free for a year. And I think, what is it? Is it a $6 a month charge if you have Dash Pass? I think it's that, or maybe it's $10 a month. Yeah. We order DoorDash more than anything else now because it's free delivery with Dash Pass, right? Yeah. And, and, and Chase yeah. has subsidized the cost of it. Yeah. Presumably yeah. in a year when Chase pulls that, have I been conditioned to right. use DoorDash and with Dash Pass? Yes. But am I going to then be like, well, now that I have to pay for it, not so sure if I want this anymore. Right. I'll probably just go pick it up myself or call the restaurant exactly. like I used to, especially when 20% of the time DoorDash is getting the order wrong. Wrong. And, and, and I would ask myself like, again, like what problem were they actually solving for you then? Like, I understand COVID's a little bit of a one-off, maybe just kind of put that aside, sure, sure. but like, but when in theory, when Chase gets rid of that promo, like what is the actual problem you're experiencing there? Like, mm -hmm. is it that you don't have enough food options? Is it that like driving is a pain in the ass? Is it that you don't want to go out? Is it that you don't want to cook? Like, I don't actually know what they're fundamentally solving yeah. um, when you put COVID aside. And that's like an existential problem. Like that is like a big deal question. Yeah. You know, if you're yeah. like, if I, if I can't even explain the problem that you're solving, like, I mean, that's like day one, <laughs> those yeah. are day one types of conversations. Well, and I think, you know, just to, if we, if we take that example, right. Yes, I'm extracting value while Chase is covering the cost of the dashboard. Yes. But also that type of revenue model is predicated on the customer not actually using it. And so then, like, like let's say I start paying for it, right? It's predicated on me not using $10 worth of delivery fees every month in order for DoorDash to make money. Yeah. Which I also think is inherently a very challenging business model when the value, the way to make money is to actually get people to not use the service you provide, which, you know, gyms right. have been doing it for years, but right. I think, you know, I think even different. then it's a little bit different. Um, 
that's also because it's all like, you know, it, it's all a fixed overhead cost. So I kind of get it from a gym's perspective. Right, right. But here, like, I mean, they need to encourage transactions. So that feels inherently at conflict. And and so I, I, I think we're kind of just in agreement on the same point here. But I, I think this is the kind of the big thing that a lot of companies have to figure out is the fundamental question on day one. How will this really make money? Not 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 mm-hmm. how will revenue get generated, regardless of whose revenue it is. Not how how will transactions take place on our platform. Okay. Yeah. yeah. How do we actually make money that is ours? Right. And what are people willing to pay for? Mm-hmm. And, espe- and especially think, as these yeah. things get more expensive. Exactly. I was just going to say it that. just pulls exactly. people away, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I was actually trying to think of a good example of a platform that I think does inherently provide a lot of value. And um, the pot, like the, the, the site um, StockX came to mind yeah. and um, there's controversy, controversy around like, sure, like their fee structure, this, that, like when they upped it recently, people are freaking out all that. I get it. But like when I was thinking about like, okay, why don't I just go outside the platform? Like I am actually willing to pay for that extra, like, the vetting and like the trust that's part of their process because they do a lot behind the scenes, right. To ensure that like you're getting what, you know, what you think you're getting and all of that. And I'm like, okay, like, even though maybe that sounds a little niche in the grand scheme of things, like the, the few times that I've transacted on it, like I've felt pretty good about that, you know, where I'm like, there is something fundamentally here that I'm paying for that is of value to me and that I'm actually willing to pay for like, subsidies aside, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and I just don't think that is like that. That's not always that straightforward of a thought, which is why I thought that was like a cool example where I'm like, no, I actually feel good about, about like the structure and the model here. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, in something like StockX, what's the value they provide? Hey, stuff that's really hard to find otherwise that even if you do find it, maybe you have to like drive hours to get to that store mm-hmm. that's selling it, or you have to wait in a long line to buy it. Right. right? The stuff, the, the the hot streetwear items, you can just buy it on our place from someone else who owns it. Yeah. You're not going to buy it at cost. You're not going to buy it yeah. at retail. You're going to pay over retail. But and I also think there's, that, yeah. that's an interesting, yeah, and they've vetted it. And I also think that's an interesting dynamic where similar to art, Sure, you don't want to make yourself broke buying it, but generally people don't pride themselves in how little they paid for art. Yeah, I get right? what you're saying. Yeah. People are like proud to say, oh, I bought this whatever piece. And yeah, I paid for it, but it's great, beautiful art, right? Yeah. Sure. Could would people want a great deal on Jordans? Sure. But people are also, there's a part of them that feels good about being like, I spent 800 bucks on these J's. <laughs> and now all my friends are going to come over and see that I have these J's. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, yeah, it's a totally different, different space. Yeah. Let's um, let's, let's hit our wrap up then. Um, where can our listeners find you and where can they learn more about Alchemy Health? And, and, you know, we didn't spend much time on Alchemy, but if you can maybe expand a little bit more on what Alchemy is doing. 
Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, definitely appreciate that. Um, it's really interesting because even though alchemy is not a traditional marketplace model, there is a lot of parallel when you think about just supply and demand dynamics. Um, so that's been really interesting, but I guess I'll back up and high level, um, Alchemy is a health content platform. Um, so we have a, a couple of different product offerings right now, um, mostly in the form of audio and video content. And um, we just launched our site about two weeks ago. So um, definitely encourage folks to check it out. Um, logging in and checking out the content is all free. Um, so definitely do that. Um, we also do um, a live version of our video product um, on Instagram Live. So um, we have uh, essentially therapy sessions, you could call them, um, and we have them almost every day. So definitely tune into that as well. Um, but yeah, I think the interesting part is that even though it's not, you know, a traditional marketplace, as I mentioned, um, you know, we partner with um, mental health providers and content creators. Um, and we're essentially, you know, creating value and creating a platform where people can access this content easily, you know, at scale, definitely much, um, much more affordably than they otherwise could. And it's definitely something I think about a lot when we talk about like, all right, what is the inherent value of the platform and what are we offering to users um, that they wouldn't get just by going going outside the platform. Um, and a big, you know, our big kind of fundamental belief is around um, making this content more um, more accessible. And so um, for me, that 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 question is definitely, um, you know, the, the box has been checked there, but, um, you know, the type of mental health content that's available is, is definitely typically hard to access, whether it's because of cost um, or other barriers such as geography and timing and, and all of those things. So, um, yeah, so, so that is a little bit about alchemy. Um, like I said, check out the site. And in terms of where people can find me, I'm pretty active on social, I would say. Um, I love talking about all the stuff that you and I have been talking about. So um, always down to keep jamming on that. Um, LinkedIn, Instagram, yeah, usually pretty easy to, to find me. So Great. And then what would your handle be if people could, could uh, find you on? Yeah. 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 So Shelly Patel on Instagram um, and you can just search Shelly Patel on LinkedIn. You'll find me. Right on. Who's one person that you want to shout out? Um, one person is tough. Um, I guess that'll have to be my husband. Um, he won't love me putting him on the spot, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'll shout out my husband, Sheil. Um, I think it probably goes without saying, but especially in um, you know, just demanding careers, I think support um, is everything. And um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that is not, not something that, you know, I think anyone takes lightly. And he just opened up his own uh, restaurant, which is pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I'll plug that real quick too. I wasn't even planning on doing that, but yeah. Um, yeah so he's running a pop-up. Um, check him out on Instagram. Um, the name is Duan, D-H-U-A-A-N. Um, and yeah, we, we definitely appreciate the support. So thank you. Great. Great. Let's go with some parting shots now. We'll each give our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on our discussion today. I'll go first and I'll toss it to you. Topic today was building a successful marketplace. Um, I think my big lesson and takeaway out of this is really understand the demand 
equation, the demand economics, however you want to phrase it. And specifically, you know, we didn't necessarily get into this, but our conversation triggered it for me. Know if you're, if you're going to build a marketplace, is there inherent repeat demand built in? You know, when I look at a, a ride share company, people have to get somewhere every day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a, there's a company I used to mentor that um, they, they went south after a couple of years. And I think they overestimated largely because they overestimated demand. They just thought, oh, it's Uber. You know, it's an on-demand thing like Uber is. And they were on-demand photography. But people don't need a photographer for most things in life. Mm-hmm. And so the repeat demand just wasn't there. And, you know, if you don't have people ordering all the time and it's also not a multi-thousand dollar order when they do order, it's hard, it's hard to create a consistent revenue stream. Shelly, parting shot, top one or two lessons for the listeners. Yeah, sure. Um, I think mine's a little, uh, a little higher level and can maybe apply broadly. Um, but I guess just a reminder to ourselves and to everyone that there really are no shortcuts and you have to really be intentional, thoughtful, and like put in the work consistently. Um, I think part of why marketplace, the marketplace model took off so quickly is because, you know, as I mentioned, it is, it is attractive at a, at a high, at a surface level, you know, and um, I worry that that sometimes means, you know, people think that like, oh, I'll just get to that endpoint faster or whatever that endpoint is. And they don't really think about all the steps and the consistent work that goes in to getting to whatever that, that point is. Um, so, I mean, I think it kind of goes for, for anything, but especially for things that maybe seem a little too good to be true or seem, you know, a little easy up front, um, you know, make sure you are being intentional, make sure you're not looking for an easy way out. Um, and as long as you are thoughtful about all the work that goes into it step, step by step, then, you know, you'll have no problem. My final question, which is how we end every episode on this show, fill in the blank, Shelly. Entrepreneurship is blank. I would say that entrepreneurship is a lifestyle. Why a lifestyle? So I think um, it kind of, it's something that like, it's, it's so much beyond just something you do for work. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of approaching life. It's um, a way of like seizing opportunity and seeing opportunity and kind of making those connections inherently um, kind of goes hand in hand with my previous point around like needing to put in the work and kind of show up consistently, you know, like you're never, you're never really off, frankly. Um, you know, it's not, I, I mean, I, I know, you know, like it's not a nine to five kind of thing to sort of like hang up your hat and go home. Um, so it really needs to be like a fundamental part of your being. It needs to, it needs to be who you are. Um, and if it's not like, you're going to be miserable doing it. So, um, yeah, I think just, you know, showing up every day consistently and putting in that work, um, you know, it ends up touching other parts of your life too. It ends up being a part of how you approach family relationships, um, friendships, you know, hobbies and everything. And, um, it really, I think becomes, like I said, a fundamental part of your being. She is Shelly Patel, director of operations at Alchemy Health. Shelly, Thank you so much for joining us on the season finale of Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Thank you so much. This was great. 
And that wraps season 16. We're going to take a break and we will be back in a month or two with the launch of season 17. And I'm excited for season 17. We're going to do something special for that. We're going to be uh, doing interviews exclusively with different uh, companies in the startup hype man client portfolio. So I'm excited to get some of them on the show. And then in the meantime, before we launch season 17, we're going to be posting best ofs over the last 16 seasons in the podcast feed. So if you're not subscribed yet, make sure you hit that button and subscribe to Startup Hype Man, the podcast. So we will see you then. And until then, Hype Man is out. Word up. And remember, raise up. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guests for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.